0: Well for those who uh, don't know me, my name is Jaden, I'm part of the pastoral team out here at the project and as always it is a pleasure uh, to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, We're going to be continuing our series in James, we're four chapters down uh, into chapter five now, one to go. And this morning we're going to be going through verses one through six. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to James chapter five and we'll be reading verses one through six. This is what it says. It says, come now you rich And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, he does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. I was born in 1989. How good were the 80s, right? which meant that I spent a fair amount of my childhood growing up in the 90s, which is a time in history when the bygone practice of corporal punishment was still alive and well. Uh, Fair to say my backside received its fair share. But I'm also one of four siblings, and there's a curious phenomenon that happens when you have a sibling, is that even if they are the one in trouble... The wooden spoon visits their backside and not your own. Somehow there is some kind of collateral correction that still goes on within the household, right? Can anyone relate to this? When I was about, I think, 11 or 12 years old, my two younger brothers were play fighting in the swimming pool. And like all good play fights, they merge along the spectrum from play fight to actual brawl. And so because it's a swimming pool fight, there was both striking and and submerging going on in this particular fight. Well, let's just say my dad intervened. But even though they were the ones in trouble, somehow I felt in trouble by sheer virtue of proximity. Like, has anyone else experienced that? I was sitting inside on the couch, and somehow I'm feeling, i got to get out of the house because someone else is in trouble. It's bizarre, right? The wrath of dad had come upon them. But you see, with dad pronouncing his disapproval of their behavior and the subsequent... Discipline reaction that followed, it served as a timely reminder for me that it would be in my best interests not to follow in their footsteps. Note to self, don't submerge younger brother. (laughs) You see, my brothers on that particular day were disciplined directly, but I learned the exact same lesson indirectly. And let me tell you this morning that the opening verses of James chapter 5 are just like that. You see, throughout this letter, which we've been looking at since July now, time and time again, James is exhorting the people of God and calling them towards conduct that is worthy of the upward call of Christ. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. My brothers, show no partiality. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. You see, he's addressing the people of God directly. But how does chapter 5 begin? Come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Whoa, this is, this is a little bit different. Where's his usual my brothers at the end of the exhortation? You see, James is not only changing his tone, but it also seems that he's speaking to a completely different audience. You'll notice he's not providing an opportunity for repentance here. He's just delivering a verdict. Miseries are coming upon you. And it begs the question, alright, if, if he's not addressing the people of God, who is it that he's talking to? Well, it might seem a little bit strange to us, but what he's actually doing is addressing unbelievers. Put it this way, if we, um, if we invited James to come and preach this text at the project one, one, one Sunday, I'm assuming time travel exists in this analogy, but the, the host would be wrapping up the announcements and the kids would be heading off to Project Kids, If James was going to preach this sermon, he'd probably be dragging this pulpit through Ruffman Street and getting ready to denounce the city from the top of Grand Central. That's the mood of this particular text, right? Wouldn't be a standard Sunday, but that's the mood. Now again, that might seem strange to us, but James is just inserting himself into a long line of Old Testament prophetic tradition. If you've spent any time reading the Old Testament prophets, you'll notice that they spend a lot of their time calling the nation of Israel to repentance, calling out their uh, adulterous idolatry and calling them to return to the laws of Moses. But what you're also going to see is mixed in with that call to repent is God, through the prophets, pronouncing his judgment on the nations. Nations that don't even belong to the covenant community of Israel are coming under the judgment of God. I just finished uh, reading Ezekiel. I'm coming to the back end of it. It's uh, 48 chapters long, Um, but chapters 25 to 32, smack bang in the middle, is completely devoted to God pronouncing judgment on surrounding nations. This is the kind of thing you read. Son of man, set your face towards the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Or I will execute judgment upon Moab. Or I will stretch out my hand against Edom. Or then he says to Egypt, because you said the Nile is mine and I made it, Therefore, behold, I am against you and against your streams, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation. This sort of thing goes on for eight chapters in the book of Ezekiel, and you'll find it throughout the rest of the prophets. See, God is the sovereign king of the universe, and so the surrounding nations are in his jurisdiction for judgment. And James is just attaching himself to this long line of Old Testament prophetic tradition. So as we listen in today, there's actually a couple of hats we need to wear as we consider the opening verses of James 5. Firstly, we need to listen to James indirectly, knowing that although James is pronouncing judgment on corrupt, rich, aristocratic unbelievers outside the church, let's be honest, you and I can drift into that kind of mindset and behavior overnight. So we listen indirectly but in such a way as to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. At the end of the day, Jesus said in Mark 4 that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. So perhaps for some of us, our faith has been sown amongst the thorns, as Jesus said in Mark 4. But then secondly, we need to listen to James directly and put ourselves in the shoes of an innocent powerless and persecuted minority, which is probably not a set of shoes we wear all too often here in Toowoomba, but you see the people to whom James originally wrote this letter were our first century brothers and sisters in Christ who were suffering at the hands of rich tyrants who were landowners, whose self-indulgence was just so pronounced it was costing them their very lives. So we need to get into those shoes this morning. We listen as though we were a peasant in Nottingham. Robin Hood was in the pulpit and he's pronouncing against Prince John. That's the kind of mood we need to get into this morning. You see, we listen in such a way, strangely, as to be comforted as we listen to what John Calvin called the miserable end of the rich. So there's a couple of hats we have to wear this morning. Look with me again to verses 2 and 3. He says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The subject of concern for James is that of wealth, the sinful ways in which the world pursues wealth and the sinful ways in which the world misuses it. And I'm sure this is a phenomenon we're all too familiar with, right? You only have to turn your radio on in any generation to realise that our culture is obsessed with money and possessions. In the 70s, it was Abba who told us, money, 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 it is a rich man's world. Or if you're like me and you went through high school in the 2000s, 50 Cent told us all that we had to get rich or die trying. <laughs> Keep my mind on my money and my money on my mind, as he famously said. And then in 2010, Travi McCoy gave us these words, Oh, every time I close my eyes, I see my name in shining lights. A different city every night. Oh, right, I swear, the world better prepare for when I'm a billionaire. (laughs) This is what we listen to on our radios, right? What's more, our retail stores have now been injected with the phenomenon of afterpay, lest we suffer the criminal uh, feeling of delayed gratification, (laughs) Our inboxes get flooded with emails from the bank that we've been pre-approved for loans that we didn't even ask about. Um, Apparently, as I'm scrolling through Facebook, it knows I've returned to cricket this season because the cricket bat ads just keep popping through. And we all keep our wardrobes, closets and garages just so cluttered that people like Marie Kondo get a world following. My mission is to spark joy in the world through tidying, is her mandate. (laughs) Alice and I have actually been watching a a similar show on Netflix. It's called Get Organised with the Home Edit. It's not a bad little show. Uh, It's about these two women who get brought in to organise other people's mess. And there's actually something strangely therapeutic about watching them organise things. I have to confess, I even colour blocked one of my bookshelves the other day. So (laughs) I've got to change my programmes on Netflix. Now look, I, I think they genuinely help a lot of people when you watch this show, but um, quite often they're consulted by celebrities. And I'm watching the countless volumes of clothing they possess. Like, why does a three-year-old need 58 different pairs of shoes? I have no idea. But uh, And I'm thinking, I-, I know how to organize this mess. Call in the skip bin or donate it to charity. That's why you've got so much clutter. You could end world hunger with the amount of stilettos you own. But then the second I say that, right, if I had millions at my disposal, could I guarantee that my wardrobe or my garage or my cricket bag wouldn't look the same? Who knows? You see, the pursuit of wealth is enticing, but it makes for a very dodgy compass. Here's what James K.A. Smith had to say about it. He said, Our culture often sells faulty, fantastical maps of the good life, that paint alluring pictures that draw us toward them. All too often we stake the expedition of our lives on them, setting sail toward them with every sheet hoisted. And we do so without thinking about it, because these maps work on our imagination, not our intellect. It's not until we're shipwrecked that we realize we trusted faulty maps. You see, contrary to the cultural narrative that you and I get so easily swept up into, time and time again the Bible reminds us of the sheer futility of this pursuit. And James says the futility is chiefly evident in the transient nature of the very things that we pursue. He says your garments are moth-eaten. Right, now we might have you know moth traps and wardrobe repellents that weren't available in the first century, I get it, but we could pat ourselves on the back for it, but James would not be impressed by that. The ability to preserve the integrity of our clothes is really not the point. If, if you look at what James is saying in the, in the original Greek language, what he's doing, is actually taking the future and final state of our clothes and kind of pulling them into the present, um, and that's how he would describe them. So basically, you could head down the Grand Central and buy a brand new Armani jacket. You could hand it to him with the receipt still in the bag, and he'd pull it out and go, ah, oh, the wretched thing is moth eaten you see, for James, if that's where it's going to end up one day, if that's its future state, it may as well be its present state in the mind of James. He does a similar thing with the, with the uh, words that follow. He says, your gold and silver have corroded, which might better translate rusted. Your gold and silver have rusted. Now, it's been a few years since I studied chemistry, but gold and silver are two metals that don't rust. So he's not talking literally as if their gold now looks like old iron, but He's looking at their most shiny possessions, and he says, yeah, they're as good as corroded. That's how James views things. Now, at this point, you you might want to push back and go, well, duh, Jaden, you're not not saying anything new, mate. I mean, you're just repeating the age-old axiom. You can't take it with you. Yeah, granted, but watch what James does next. He, He takes it a little bit further, and he says... Not only are they as good as corroded, but their corrosion will be evidence against you. <laughs> Look, if it's not uh, a pa- not apparent already, um, let it be known, I'm a fair bit of a movie buff. Um, and I've been on a little bit of a uh, whodunit crime film bandwagon of late. Um, there's some absolute rippers on Netflix at the moment. If you need recommendations, hit me up. In fact, just the other night I got a text from Royce and Joe, give us a movie for uh, our movie night. So, pastoral carrot, at its finest, right? But... But uh, something that pops up quite frequently in crime films is that big plot twist moment, right, in the courtroom, where the attorney's private investigator suddenly discovers the murder weapon, or that file that was otherwise believed to be deleted, and it gets brought into the courtroom, and suddenly the person sitting in the witness stand's blood pressure just elevates a little bit. You know, they think, "Oh no, this this verdict is going to go the other way now." Well. That's what we have here in James 5. Only the murder weapons that get brought in as exhibits are going to look a little bit different. You see, on Judgment Day, it could look something like this. Uh, members of the jury, uh, may I present the following evidence against the defendant? Um, bring in Exhibit A. Bring in the jet ski. Um, can we bring in Exhibit B? Uh, bring in the title deed for the mansion. Sir, is, is this your signature? Exhibit C, bring in the yacht. He says, their corrosion will be evidence against you. Thomas Manton said it pretty briefly, but powerfully. Present delights will prove future torments. Now, at this point, I'm sure we're all nervously awaiting the verdict. Jaden, what are you saying? Like, is, it, is it okay to have things? I mean, is there some kind of Christian salary cap that James is talking about here? I mean, is money always bad? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, no, it's not. It's, it's possible for a Christian to have wealth and to steward it faithfully and to do so without living an exorbitant life of self-indulgence, absolutely. But although that is indeed possible, it is simultaneously very difficult. In fact, the snare of wealth is so hazardous, Jesus tells us in Matthew 19 that it is only with difficulty that a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. Of all the stumbling blocks on the road to eternity, is there any bigger than our obsession with wealth? Probably not. If the kingdom of God could be likened to a game of snakes and ladders, our money would be the snakes. Jesus told a parable in Luke 12. You can turn there with me if you like. I'm going to read from verse 15 to 21. This is what Jesus said. He said, And he said to them, Take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. First world problem, right? Got so much food, don't know what to do with it. What a pity. And he said, I will do this I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. You see, according to the wisdom of the world, this man acted quite shrewdly. I think, I think Wall Street Journal would do a bit of a write-up on him. I think they'd applaud him. I think he could be in line for an Australian Business Award. He acted quite shrewdly. But in the final assessment, God calls him a fool. And you see, the problem with this man, it's not that he had riches, but that he failed to acknowledge God in his wealth and failed to stew, uh, steward his wealth through the lens of eternity. You see, in Proverbs 11.26, it says, The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. But this man held it back. Augustine rightly comments, he says, The bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. This man laid up treasure on earth and failed to be rich towards God. And furthermore, it's not, that it, it's not just that he had some kind of economic ethics problem. I would argue he had an eschatology problem. Now, I know that's my favorite word, and I talk about it all the time, but Project Church, do you have any idea where you are on the biblical timeline? You see, in verse 3, James doesn't just say you've laid up treasure, but he says you've laid it up in the last days. He qualifies where he is in history with respect to his laying up treasure. Now, I'm sure we've all heard some pretty wacky stuff about the last days. There's a lot of weird stuff on the internet, but... Plain and simply, on the pages of the New Testament, the last days simply refers to that final chapter in redemptive history before we get ushered into the new heavens and the new earth. And we need to know that the last days isn't something in our distant future, but it actually began 2,000 years ago at Pentecost. Do you remember Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2? He said, In the last days it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, you see, Pentecost was the starting point of the last days, or the Church Age, as it's sometimes called, which means that you and I, on on God's timeline, are living in an age that is coming to a close. It, it's it, it's wrapping up. God's not going to flood the earth again. He's not going to make promises to patriarchs. He's not going to set up a time of judges and then another round of kings. And no, no, he's he's up to the last chapter, the age of the Church, the last days. Now, no one knows the, the day or hour of Christ's return, but let me tell you, this is the final countdown. <laughs> Listen, you, uh, you don't go into pit lane for a set of new ties and a paint job on the last lap. All right? you, you run that sucker lean all the way to the finish line. And so it should be with us. James basically says the same thing using a parallel statement. Look there in verse 5. He says, you have lived, pardon me, I've scrolled down too far, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts, when? In a day of slaughter, the last days. You see, our problem isn't just an economic ethics problem. It's an eschatology problem. We're plagued with a problem that uh, Paul Tripp calls practical, meistic presentism. Look what he says about it in his book, Redeeming Money. He says, I am persuaded that much of the money insanity that lives in us and around us is the direct and practical result of culturally endemic eternity amnesia. What has gripped most of us in the culture around us is what I call practical, meistic presentism. Say that five times fast, right? <laughs> it's practical because it really does shape our daily living. It's meistic because it puts us and our personal wants, needs, feelings, hopes and dreams in the center of our field of concern. It is a fundamentally me-centered way of thinking about life. And it's presentism because it's all about this moment. In other words, it's fueled by a short-term view of life rather than the long-term view that dies all the Bible teaches, Paul Tripp. So we have an eschatology problem. But if you peel back the onion just a little bit further, it's also that we have an idolatry problem, a heart problem. As we've seen throughout this series, James is a copycat. Uh, He gets all of his theology from his older brother Jesus and from the book of Proverbs, and once again he does it. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we did a sermon a few months back on taming the tongue, we said that if you want to know how someone's heart is doing, just have a listen to what they're saying. For out of the mouth the heart speaks. Well, we have another diagnostic test here in chapter 5. Where is our treasure? Listen, if the. If the good news of the gospel has truly transformed your heart, the the overflow of that transformation will and must affect your wallet. If you have wealth, go build an orphanage. Go talk to Jody and sponsor a compassion child. Finance a church plant. Fund overseas missions. Practice hospitality by inviting people over for a barbecue and feed them well. Or if you're really brave, go skydiving to raise money for refugees. Let's be people who lay up treasure in heaven. So that's the futility and final verdict of wealth that James gives us. But then he gets into some specifics now. Let's read verses 4 and 6. I'm going to skip verse 5 for the moment. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. My dad was a plasterer for most of his life. Uh, If you look up hard worker in the dictionary, there is a portrait of my old man. Uh, For the first 20 to 25 years of his working career, he was just your textbook Aussie battler. And I can remember for him working uh, for this one particular builder growing up who always made a habit of paying his wages in the most crippling increments. I mean, I can't remember how many times we would be driving as a family on payday, driving towards this builder's house, who in his cowardice would never hand a check to Dad in person. He would always just leave it in the mailbox in an envelope. And every time we'd pull up into the driveway, Dad would go collect the envelope and open it up in front of Mum and the rest of us. And every time, it was always significantly less than he was owed. And just the... The outrage and distraught, especially in the voice of my mother, how are we going to pay for this bill or that bill? At the end of the day, they've got four kids to look after. It was hard for them at different times growing up. You need to know that God feels the pinch with you in moments like that. That's, that's no trivial issue for God Almighty. Look at what he says in Deuteronomy 24. He says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day, before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. We're uh, really blessed here at the project to have Jenna working for us in accounts and uh, let me tell you, Jenna doesn't miss payday. Um, she doesn't really miss anything to be honest. Uh, every I is dotted, every T is crossed and I think Excel spreadsheets bow in her presence into submission. Uh, and when you give Jenna a receipt, it genuinely makes her day. And with with Jenna at the helm, Alice and I on payday, we don't, we don't fear payday. The, the money's there and we can pay our rent and cover our grocery bill without fretting. And it's, it's truly a blessing. Now, that's the kind of assurance that I have, and I imagine most of us would have in our 21st century context, but you have to remember that in the first century, in Palestine and surrounding regions, um, they played host to what's known as a subsistence culture. Give us this day, our daily bread, was not just a liturgy to them. They had daily bread and none for the next day, right? If, if you weren't paid after a day's work, you and your children would not eat that night. There were no muesli bars or baked beans or microwave dinners that you could keep store away. No, like you would be sleeping on a starving belly, going to work the next day, also on a starving belly, mowing fields of all places in the Middle East without a ride on. That's that's pretty hard work. Not being paid your wages meant your very existence was threatened. People died for not being paid. James says that these labourers mowed their fields, which implies that those who um, hired them were rich enough to own fields. Let me tell you, if you were rich enough to own fields, you had the money to pay your workers. But it says they held them back by fraud. And James says a couple of terrifying things about this particular sin. Firstly, he says, these wages are crying out against you. Now, that may be a familiar phrase for us if we've read the book of Genesis. It actually goes all the way back to Genesis 4.10, when Cain killed his brother Abel. It says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And what's more, it's, it's not as though these wages are just crying out against you out into the ether, but they actually reached the ears of someone. And James says they reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That's a unique title for God in the Old Testament. It's a title that refers to God as the commander of a large army, a large army of angels, right? It's it's an Old Testament title that was used of God whenever his people found themselves defenseless and powerless. He would... Uh, speak of himself as the lord of hosts who would go into bat for them, as it were. I experienced um, quite a bit of bullying uh, in high school growing up, and I'll never forget this one particular day where one of my best mates was getting picked on, of all times when he had a broken leg. He was on crutches, for goodness sake, and they still decided to go after him. But on this day, his older brother saw it. Let me tell you, it was the older brother of hosts who intervened on that particular day, right? He went in for the defenseless. You see, when you fail to pay your employees' wages, you are drawing the attention of the general of the most powerful army in the cosmos. Not a good idea. He's the Lord of hosts. You see, what can happen for us is that when you're the one in charge, when you're the one with the money and the power, it can be easy for you to think that you're above the system, that you answer to no one and you can dangle as many carrots and pull as many strings as you like and... Listen, don't be so naive. The Lord of hosts sees that and will bring justice on that. James says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Now, that word condemned is significant. It implies that there wasn't just wage withholding going on. The, the word condemned has overtones of like a judicial verdict. Like these rich landowners were using the court systems and, and pulling their aristocratic weight to manipulate outcomes so they could rid poor people of their own land. And what happens is when people get cheated out of their own land, they get condemned to starvation. And James concludes, that's nothing shy of murder. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. Now, by by way of application, fair to say that here in 21st century Toowoomba, I I imagine that most people in the room, though there could be exceptions, are, are not the victims of this level of Of oppression. I mean, it still happens today in certain African nations where the governments are so corrupt, it's basically driving the poverty over there. No matter how much foreign aid gets sent, it ends up in the hands of the government. You can read about it in a book by Wayne Grudem, The Poverty of Nations. It might happen in a curious Western phenomenon within the church where people preach a false gospel that steals the money out of people's hands, making false promises in the name of God. I've seen that happen a lot. But for some of us, I imagine we've only seen this kind of thing on television, perhaps on movies like Les Mis or The Hunger Games and the like. This is not our personal reality. So the application for most of us today is probably going to be a little bit different. Now, Pete will take us through verses 7 through 11 next week, which will talk about patience in suffering, which is linked to what we're talking about today. But the question we have to ask ourselves in light of a text like this, as we're hearing about the oppression of the poor... We have to ask this, what if you're not the one suffering, but we have the power to help those who are? You see, James and the rest in the Bible is genuinely concerned about the well-being of the poor. That's right throughout the scriptures. And as Christians, we are called to the degree, to the degree that we can to extend our hand to help them. Now, the moment I say that, I realize I've struck a very tender nerve in the world of Christianity at the moment. There are some evangelicals who would throw rocks at me for saying what I just said. Uh, there's quite a bit of uh, hostile ink getting spelt uh, in this particular area at the moment, and here's why. There was a movement uh, that started in the 19th century in Christianity known as the Social Gospel, which, to uh, put things simply, created a shift in emphasis from what might be called classical evangelism. Uh, you know, Preaching the Gospel, calling people to repentance, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... That kind of classical evangelism, there was a shift towards um, social justice, ministry to the poor, political reform, ministry to the orphan, an array of other social issues. And what can happen and what has happened and continues to happen today in in different forms is that suddenly the gospel of the kingdom gets smudged and it's no longer a message about the substitutionary atoning death of Christ and it becomes a kind of liberation movement. That Jesus came first and foremost, you know, just to, to set the captives free, you know, abolish slavery and reform, you know, reform uh, working conditions for the poor. And, you know, the atoning work of Christ kind of gets relegated to the back room. And that's what happens sometimes with a, a typically social gospel. Now, rightly so, there have been some very strong and very sound voices in the evangelical camp that have said, no, we. We can't do this. We're getting our priorities wrong. I mean, at the end of the day, Jesus lived in first-century Palestine, and he did nothing to end Greco-Roman slavery. It wasn't his priority. He came to die for sinners. And I think some of these voices are actually making a very fair point. At the end of the day, Paul said to the church in Corinth that as a matter of first importance, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, the gospel of the kingdom is a message of salvation that Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf, providing a way that we might live with him for eternity. Not because of any merit of our own, but because of the notorious work of Christ. Amen to that. That is the gospel. It is the message of the gospel that is alive in the heart of Holly Gilmore this morning, and we baptize her. That is the gospel of the kingdom. But in my opinion, many of the men who have helped fend off a social gospel have actually perhaps gone too far in the other direction, to the point where they basically deny the Christian's responsibility to graciously extend their hand to help the poor, the oppressed, the orphan, the, the unborn and the enslaved. Now, I agree, the social, uh, just, social justice is not the gospel, but anyone who has had their hearts transformed by the gospel cannot help but see the effects of the fall around them and want to intervene. Christ has been so gracious towards us. How can we not move towards them? You see, it would be exegetically insane to deny that part of our calling. What do you do with texts like Proverbs nineteen seventeen? Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his debt. Galatians 6, do good unto all men. This is part of our calling. So how do we get the balance right? Well, you do both. And I think John Piper has summed it up perfectly, as he so often does because he's John Piper. (laughs) He says, Christians should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And I think, as just a brief point of application, I think we could be more charitable with each other as we consider the tension of it. Some of us are going to be called more towards social justice with maybe less emphasis on classical evangelism in your individual calling. But let's stop attacking each other. Too often we see the social justice types going, gee, these evangelists aren't doing anything, are they? And the evangelists, back at the social justice people, when are they going to start preaching the gospel? We need to do both. (laughs) Christians should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Why doesn't the band come and join me? Project Church, this is a heavy text. But we need to be reminded this morning that this world is not our home. You're a pilgrim and a sojourner. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. We're just passing through, and you can't take it with you. My prayer this morning is that with God's help, we can develop the right posture towards our money and our possessions in light of the gospel. And so I want to close this morning with these words from Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, which I think could just be a prayer for us this week. I pray it would help us along the way. It says this. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Here's the kicker for me. Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God.